book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel, one of those books that oftentimes pages in the Bible through the book of Ezekiel stay relatively clean. Not a lot of coffee spills on the pages of Ezekiel. It's one of those books that are probably oftentimes overlooked and oftentimes because it's misunderstood or it's something that people feel like I'm just not going to get my brain around Ezekiel especially when you jump into the first chapter and you start reading about these flying things with circles and wheels and eyes and you're just going oh my goodness let's skip right over the book of Daniel oh wait that's not any easier either well we're going to be getting through uh, the book of Ezekiel here tonight and Lord willing we're going to just again we're moving through how fast does a, a large airplane go anybody know how fast is an Pete, you got the sensor for me. No. I mean, that works for me. I have no idea. Let's take it. And if it's wrong, it's on Pete, right? So, um, but man, we're cruising at a high altitude and we're cruising at a high speed. And especially as we go through 48 chapters in the book of Ezekiel and hope to cover it all in one night, we're going to be doing just that. We're cruising at a fast, rapid rate. And so buckle your seatbelts here. And uh, it, it may be a bumpy ride, but I don't think there's going to be a lot of turbulence on this flight. And we're going to do our best to, to cruise through here and get ourselves just a little bit more acquainted with who Ezekiel is, the context of why he's writing this, what's going on, why we have this book in the Bible. And so those are the things that we're going to be looking at here tonight because Ezekiel is a book that's packed with glorious truths because it's a, a book that's really essentially centering on the theme of the glory of God, the glory of God. And we'll be seeing that as we, as we go through here. Now, the backdrop for the book here of Ezekiel, it's unfolding while Israel is in captivity in where? Babylon, all right? So, We've been seeing a lot of books of prophecy since we got in the book of Isaiah. We've gone through Isaiah, we've gone through Jeremiah, all and Lamentations. You know, really dealing with these things that are taking place as the Babylonians have come in, sacked Jerusalem, led people away. So as we're dealing with the captives going into captivity there, we saw that there were, again, I'm going to remind you, refresh you on this, there's three waves of deportation coming in so in 605 bc that first attack against jerusalem came there was a group of captives that were taken to babylon daniel was among one of the men taken in that first group as they were seeming to be pretty selective taking away some of the wise intelligent just you know crafty people and so daniel's fitting the bill he's gone 597 bc jerusalem's attacked again by babylon and here the treasure from the temple was taken. More captives led back to Babylon. Ezekiel now is one of those that are taken to Babylon during that time. So Ezekiel isn't in Jerusalem when the Babylonians finally break through. That happens in 586 BC when Babylon came through. They sacked the city. The temple is destroyed. And we saw through our study in Jeremiah that Jeremiah was one of those that were prophesying during that time, 40 years of ministry for Jeremiah, he's there prophesying during that time, warning the people that this is coming. And then Jeremiah is allowed to stay back. He seems he's got some favor with the, 
the king of Babylon, he's allowed to stay back there in Jerusalem where he continues to minister to the people, the few people that remained back. And that's where the book of Lamentations is being written as he's lamenting over the destruction of the city and just kind of all that's ensuing after that. So as you see, what's interesting is Ezekiel is a contemporary with Daniel, with Jeremiah, some of these well-known prophets uh, that we see through the Bible. Most believe that Daniel and Ezekiel were perhaps trained up under Jeremiah's ministry. But it's kind of cool because here we see that in Judah's most devastating time where they've been sacked, the city, the temple, many led away into captivity. What's really cool is that we see what God is kind of setting up and establishing because here we see that Daniel is there ministering in the courts, the king's court in Babylon. So he's got a selective audience, a certain audience there among the Babylonians. And then we see that Ezekiel or Jeremiah is ministering to the people back in Israel, but God's got Ezekiel there ministering to the captives that are in exile in Babylon. And so God is using Ezekiel to speak these words of, of encouragement, ultimately, exhortation to those that are in exile in Babylon. God's got his men positioned in all these different places so that the word of God continues to go forth and minister to the people of God. Now, Ezekiel's message is that, is that God is, is with his people, even in exile. God's not abandoned them. God's got it covered. And the purpose of this book is to encourage those that are in exile. Though they rebelled against God, they're reaping the fruit of that now. It's obvious. It's, it's evident that they're reaping the fruit of the life of, of rebellion and disobedience to God. But all this isn't to punish his people. It's to help them see that God is indeed the Lord and that he's the one that they should have been worshiping and following all along. And that blessing is going to come as they seek him and follow him obediently. I'm sure we've all spent time where we've felt like we're kind of out in the wastelands, right? Like we're in a barren place. We're wondering what is going on here. And we can feel all alone. We can feel without hope in those situations. These Israelite captives would have been wrestling through those same kinds of thoughts and feelings going like, what happened here? But we have to always remind ourselves that we're never without hope. Because sometimes God leads us to places that seem barren only to reveal himself in greater ways to us so that we can kind of come again to the end of ourselves where we have no other course but to go, Lord, we need you. We need your help. We need, your, we need to look to you once more. Because it's there then that God wants to begin to reveal himself in wonderful and great ways. He did that with John on the Isle of Patmos. He did that for Paul while in prison. And he does it for Ezekiel and his people here in Babylon. So whatever your situation, whatever you might be going through, look to God and seek him and allow him to begin to encourage you and comfort you and reveal himself to you. He wants you to simply know him in a greater way. In fact, this whole book, like I said, is to reveal the glory of God. Well, all through this book, we see 63 times at least 63 times this phrase, then you will know that I am the Lord. Or it might say that they might know that I am the Lord. You see that? 63 times, at least through the book of Ezekiel, we're going to hear that those words being said that you might know that I am the Lord. That's exactly what God wants them to know. Not, He's not there to just squash them and punish them. He wants them to come to him for them to realize and know that he is indeed the Lord, the one that they should have been following all along. And I pray that as we kind of look at this study here tonight, that we too will get that greater glimpse of who God is, of his glory, 
his wonder, his goodness, just as we sang about here tonight, just to give us that sense of awe and wonder at our great God. So here's this outline that we're going to be looking at here in the book of Ezekiel. We're going to see the commission of the prophet, chapters 1 to 3, the correction of the problem, chapters 4 to 24, that really begin to detail uh, the sins of Judah, why they're in this mess. So the correction of the problem, their sin. We're going to see the condemnation of the peoples. And so there will be this kind of series of, uh, of judgments, proclamations against the various nations around Israel. So the condemnation of the peoples, the Gentile nations. And then the confirmation of God's purposes, chapters 33 to 48. Right through the end of the book, we begin to see what God really has in store for his people. The confirmation of God's purposes. So real good. Chapters 1 and 24 um, are all containing prophecies after the first and second deportation, but before that third siege and the final destruction of Jerusalem. Then chapters 25 to 32 contain prophecies kind of relating to the fall of Jerusalem. Chapters 33 to 48 contain prophecies after the fall of Jerusalem, including its future restoration in the end times. Here's a few other fascinating or fun facts of Ezekiel. He's one of only two people in the Bible who are commanded by God to eat a scroll. Wouldn't you love to do that? Not really. But here, Ezekiel, as well as John in Revelation 10, is told to do that. The book of Ezekiel contains more dates than any other Old Testament prophetic book and is therefore well documented. We, we begin to see very clearly the time that Ezekiel is referencing oftentimes as he gives the exact dates for that. Nothing else is recorded in Scripture about Ezekiel outside of his book. Ezekiel is one of two Old Testament books, also Isaiah, containing passages that describe the fall of Satan. We'll look at that here tonight. And even Jesus apparently made reference to that in Luke 10. In Ezekiel, there are at least 25 references to the Holy Spirit. Isn't that cool? You know, here we are in the, in the Old Testament, looking at a nation that's taken away into captivity because of their sin, and yet we see a lot of emphasis on the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit that will be coming. I love it. Ezekiel's ministry... Lastly, opens with a heavenly vision of God and closes with an earthly vision of God. So chapter 1, hope you're there, Ezekiel chapter 1. Let's look at these first few verses. It says this. Now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Kabar, that the heavens were open, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, which was in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kabar, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. So again, we see some pretty precise dating being given just in those first few verses. He says that he received this vision on the fifth day of the month, which was in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity. He was taken away captive to Babylon in 597 BC. So the time that Ezekiel is is seeing this first vision is July 31st, 593 BC. So we see very exactly what Ezekiel is referencing, 593 BC. And we know where Ezekiel was by the river Kabar. That was a large canal that connected the Euphrates River, both north and south of Babylon. Uh, it was kind of making a semicircular loop around the city. And we'll see the captives were living in a place called Tel Abib there in chapter 3. Verse 15, and it's interesting because we oftentimes think that the captives, those that are in exile in Babylon, you'd think they're, they're kind of like prisoners, you know, prisoners of war. Maybe like they're shackled, they're, they're in a jail. But no, they're, they're allowed to kind of 
settle in the land. They're making homes for themselves. They begin to conduct themselves in business. In fact, when it's time after that 70 years of captivity has expired, where God had laid out for them, where they were able to come back, a lot of them didn't want to come back. They'd become very comfortable in Babylon. And a lot of them just settled and stayed there and failed to come back. Interesting, our, our guide that we use in Israel, Avi, he, his, his family is traced back to there in Babylon, Iraq, and he was, uh, you know, his family were some of the descendants that came back there and have now settled in, in Israel. Very interesting fact for you. And if you come to Israel with us in March, you'll be able to meet him. So there you go. All right. Just my shameless plug for our Israel tour in March 2020. Okay. Everybody good? With me? Everybody's here? All right. So now, Ezekiel also makes mention in verse 1, that's in the, in the 30th year. And, and so that would be talking about himself. It's like in his 30th year. And this is very interesting because we also see in verse 3 that Ezekiel was a what? Somebody, verse 3, what was Ezekiel? Somebody shout it out in verse 3. A what? A priest. A priest. So very interesting because priests were trained up and in their 30th year, when they turned 30, they would begin to serve as priests, they've been trained up in this time, and now they're ready to launch into service as a priest. A pretty high calling that Ezekiel's been getting ready for, but now it's in his 30th year, the time that he's getting ready to go, man, all my training is finally going to get put to use, and I'm going to be able to serve as a priest. Now this is going to be great. It's going to be great. All of a sudden, boom, carried away into captivity, gone, taken from him. But Ezekiel's not sitting here complaining morning. In fact, we're going to see that God has a whole new role from God's going to take him from being a priest and he's going to call him to be a prophet. That's what we're looking at here, this commissioning of the prophet of Ezekiel. But you see, oftentimes we can feel like, man, we're setting up for something and all of a sudden the Lord sometimes can throw us a curveball, right? That's, that can be kind of depressing at times. I remember when I was getting ready to get my license, 15 years old, that's all I'm thinking about. Turn 16, I'm getting my license right away. I can't wait. But there was all this talk about maybe we'll make the age for getting your license 18. And I'm just sitting here praying every night. No, Lord, don't let them do that. At least wait till I turn 16 and get my license. I don't want to change. You know, there's often times where we can be getting ready for something and have things turn around. And I'd be, I would have been bummed out if they changed that law. And Ezekiel would have been feeling that way too, I'm sure. But we see God is preparing him for something different. A new call, a new role, that of a prophet. And we have to keep in mind that our highest goal in life is simply to live in a manner that brings glory to God. And if we're allowing our circumstances or what we do to dictate our happiness, then we've got it all wrong. See, the key for Ezekiel is to recognize that he just needs to remain pliable in God's hands and for the Lord just to use him in whatever way he chooses. And when we allow ourselves to just willingly and obediently follow the Lord and say, God, here I am. What do you have for me to do? Even though it might be different from a course that we might have tracked out and thought, this is what I want to do. We say, Lord, is there something different you want me to do? Because my role, my life needs to exist simply for your glory, God. And if I can glorify you better in this way, then so be it, God. That's what should bring joy and, and just satisfaction in our lives is when we're living in a way that's pleasing and glorifying God. And Ezekiel would do just that. 
Notice it says in verse 1 that the heavens were opened and he saw visions of God. See, before God would have Ezekiel serve, he wanted to be sure that he clearly saw God. It's the same for us. Because all ministry that we do needs to flow out of that place of intimacy with the Lord, being relational with God, knowing him before we're serving him. Worship must come before work. Seeing the Lord always precedes serving the Lord. And so Ezekiel is getting a vision, truly, of who God is. Look at verse 4. Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it and radiating out of its, out of its midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man, each one had four faces and each one had four wings. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves', calves feet. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. The hands of a man were under their wings on their four sides and each of the four had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. So this is quite an introduction for Ezekiel. Hey, Ezekiel. I'm going to call you to be a prophet, and I'm going to drop a little bomb on you right now. I'm going to give you a vision of heaven. I'm going to show you this angelic presence right now. I mean, Ezekiel's, God's not starting slow with Ezekiel. He's just like throwing him right into the fire. This is some, some crazy stuff right now. And we're going to see in that vision, there, there's a cloud, there's fire. Interestingly, that's the way that God revealed himself to the children of Israel in the wilderness, a pillar of cloud by day fire by night so here we see that in the midst of this here and there's just a great display of brightness and color in this vision and Ezekiel is going to mention many times that this vision is is like or the likeness of because he's seeing things that he has no reference of right he's seeing the glory and the wonder of God this this heavenly vision that it's hard for him to really describe that with language that he's never had to identify this before. He's seen things that he's never seen. He's got no way to describe this. So he's like, it's, it's like this. It's, it's like that. But ultimately, it's not doing it justice as we know oftentimes. I mean, God just keeps revealing himself in ways to us that, you know, sometimes we just, we need to continually just grow in the wonder of God because we're never fully going to comprehend you know, the, the nature and the completeness of God. Isn't that, a, isn't that a great thing to know that the more that we just press in, I mean, the more that we just continue to, to learn and grow in, but, but yet we're never going to fully comprehend just the wonder and the greatness of God, which should then cause us all the more to keep pressing in and know that, man, I'm never going to fully get it. But every time I just keep pressing in, I just get a little bit more of the picture and fullness of who God is. So Ezekiel here begins to kind of give a description of these living creatures. He's later going to refer to them as cherubim in Ezekiel 10. So he gets another vision of the same kind of thing in Ezekiel 10, which there he identifies them as cherubim. And Ezekiel would have been very familiar with cherubim, these, these angelic figures, because there he is training up in the temple, and, and there were these depictions of these cherubim all around the temple in fact there were two artistic designs of the cherubim on the lid of the ark of the covenant first kings chapter six you read that solomon just incorporated cherubim into the artistic design of the temple it was cherubim that god placed 
at the eastern side of the Garden of Eden with these, you know, swords drawn that would prevent Adam and Eve from coming back into the garden after their fall and eating of that tree of life. And so cherubim were there in the garden. So Ezekiel sees these living creatures. He knows they're angelic beings. Now, some of you perhaps at times have wished, you know, to see an angel. Anybody ever wish to see an angel? That would be really cool. Well, then you read this and you think, maybe not right now. I don't know if I'd be ready to handle seeing an angel that was, you know, whirring like this and just these four, you know, four creatures with four faces on them and all this. It's like, you're just like you're flipping out, right? You'd be like, my goodness, what is going on, right? That would be crazy. But here they are. And, and Ezekiel is very aware of them. Now, it tells us that John also saw a heavenly scene, right? In Revelation 4, when he's taken up to heaven. And he says there in Revelation 4, verse 6 to 8, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And there's some significance to why these four. Just as we see in Ezekiel's vision, four creatures, each with four faces, each with those faces of a lion, eagle, ox, and a man. And, and there's some significance to why these four. The four represent all sentient creation. Man is the highest creature God made. Lion, eagle, and ox dominate the wild animal kingdom, the skies, and the domesticated animals respectively. Since God sits on a throne above the cherubim, the thought is that all sentient creation is subordinate to him. And the church fathers also connected these descriptions to the theme of each of the gospels. Just as there's four living creatures, four faces we have four gospels and in each of the gospels jesus is represented in a certain way in matthew he's writing to to portray jesus as the king and so represented by the lion in mark's gospel jesus it comes along he's represented as the suffering servant so the ox is representing servanthood luke's gospel records jesus as you know the son of man it emphasizes his humanity seen in the face of a man and then john's gospel writes to reveal the the deity of jesus that that he's god representing the the eagle soaring in the heavens so each of the living creatures had four outstretched wings with two of them they covered their bodies with the two other uh with the other two they connected to each other and that was just you know this work of unison right interesting too those four creatures that we see were all represented by the tribes that camped around the tabernacle. Each of them represented by the banner of the closest tribe there around the tabernacle with these four descriptions. So we see that all intertwined throughout Scripture, all really pointing ahead to how Jesus himself would be revealed and then just that, that work going on in heaven. Now, Ezekiel 1, verse 15, and you're thinking, we're only in chapter 1. How are we going to get through this? Trust me, we'll, we'll get through it, guys. We're going to jump ahead here in a minute. But... Chapter 1, verse 15 to verse 21 speaks of the method of transportation of these cherubim. And, and so there's this description of these wheels that are connected with the living creatures. And they operate interdependently with these cherubim. And these wheels seem to 
be like this gyroscope because it's a wheel within a wheel and they're intersecting with each other at this 90 degree angle and the rims were high and Austin says and they're filled with eyes all right so each of the wheels filled with eyes pretty crazy perhaps speaking of just the omniscience now all all seeing all knowing in a sense of God verse 24 Let's read along here, and it says this, verse 24. When they went, I heard the noise of their wings, like the noise of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult like the noise of an army. And when they stood still, they let down their wings. A voice came from above the firmament that was over their heads. Whenever they stood, they let down their wings. And above the firmament over their heads was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Also from the appearance of his waist and upward, I saw as it were the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward, I saw as it were the appearance of fire with brightness all around. Verse 28, like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice of one speaking. Now, the vision of the Lord just continues to get increasingly more overwhelming to Ezekiel. Because he sees what the living creatures are supporting. They're supporting a throne. And Ezekiel sees him who is seated on the throne now. It says here, J.W. Weber said, Most expositors view these cherubim as forming supporting or pulling a throne chariot on which Ezekiel saw God riding. I think this makes sense. Perhaps the mobility of the wheels suggests God's omnipresence, the eyes, his omniscience, and the elevated position, his omnipotence. And notice again how many times Ezekiel is saying the likeness of. No doubt Ezekiel was getting a vision of the glory of God, and, and, and he's sure to clarify that he saw a representation of the real. Nevertheless, Ezekiel here is overwhelmed just at the sight. And what does he do? He falls down just in humble reverence and submission. I mean, could you imagine seeing this? You got these colors that he's probably never seen before. He's seeing this, this great throne-like thing hovering over these cherubim and, and now a voice speaking to him. I mean, he's just like, he's struck down in awe. I pray that we continue just to get a greater glimpse of the glory of God because when we do guess what it does it just knocks out so much junk and that we wrestle with primarily that idol of I we just suddenly begin to realize I am nothing in comparison to who God is and how I need just to live my life in submission and surrender to God chapter 2 verse 1 and he said to me son of man stand on your feet and I will speak to you then the spirit entered me when he spoke to me and set me on my feet and I heard him who spoke to me, and he said to me, Son of man, I'm sending you to the children of Israel to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. And they and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day, for they are impudent and stubborn children. I'm sending you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, As for them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious selves, yet they will know that a prophet has been among them. So God's giving Ezekiel a lot to take in now, wouldn't you say? So far, it's like, I mean, this would be, this is enough, Lord, right now. Let me just process this a little bit. He's got a heavenly vision. There's an earthly rebellion going on that Ezekiel has to 
go and speak to. But God is also giving Ezekiel his spirit to empower him to do it. Always remember that, that when God sends you, he's going to equip you. He equips those whom he calls. And so whatever the Lord might be leading into, never do you have to sit there and think, God, I can't do that. Now, that's true because you might not be able to do it in yourself, but God says, I'm not relying on you. I just need a willing, humble vessel that's ready to go. And I'm going to empower them. I'm going to send my spirit upon them that will equip them and empower them for ministry. And Ezekiel is getting just that. And then God gives Ezekiel that scroll there in chapter 2, verse 9. And says, now, when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me. And behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside. And written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. So this word that Ezekiel is being commissioned to go and share the people... It's going to be a heavy word. It's a word full of kind of judgment and and doom. It's heavy. It's going to be filled with correction and rebuke. But then notice what happens. Chapter 3, verse 1. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate and it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. Isn't that incredible? That's so cool. See, just like John in Revelation, Ezekiel's told to digest the very contents that he would be discussing with his peers. And it was a heavy word that he would be sharing. And God wanted Ezekiel to know it well. But it also became sweetness like honey. Because when we take in God's word, and when we begin to follow it obediently, see, there's always hope and encouragement. I think Ezekiel began to realize that the final product for what God has in store is not doom and gloom. It's hope and glory. And so Ezekiel takes it in, and it's just sweetness like honey to him. Every person that is being called the Lord that God wants to use, especially preachers or speakers for God, they need to internalize that message. It's like Ezekiel has to take it in. It's no use passing on something that hasn't gripped your own heart, or in Ezekiel's case, your stomach, right? But how we need to be those that have this internalized in us that have God's word deep in our hearts that when we speak to people, we're not just speaking in a way where we're trying to give them something that we haven't experienced ourselves. Or we're passing on that which we know to be true because we've taken it in. And then Ezekiel, in verse 17, is called to be a watchman. Look at verse 17 of chapter 3. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. Now, a watchman in Old Testament times, they played a very crucial and important role because they were the men, the people that were to be up on the city wall that were watching ahead for any kind of impending, uh, you know, armies coming against them, any trouble that was coming, and they were to sound the alarm. There's trouble on the horizon. There's an invading army, and they were to sound the alarm so that people in the city, inside the city walls, would begin to get on guard and get ready to go even on the offense. And so the watchman had a very important job. And just so, too, for Ezekiel, God's calling him to an important role. Sound the alarm. Listen, and he says, if people don't hear it or people don't want to receive it, that's on them. But if they haven't heard because you haven't sounded the alarm, then that's going to be on you, Ezekiel. This is what God is telling him. So it's a huge responsibility for Ezekiel. It's a responsibility for all of us, isn't it? To be watchmen. To be 
sounding the alarm, not, not in a frantic, worrisome way, but to let people know that time is short. Jesus is coming back. Are they ready? We need to be those watchmen. So we've seen the commissioning of the prophet. Now in chapter 4, all the way to verse chapter 24, we see the correction of the problem. Because part of Ezekiel's calling now was to remind Judah, the nation that's been taken into captivity, why they're there, what they've done, what's gone on, and what they can expect here. And part of Ezekiel's calling was to act out some of these messages. He was to give some illustrated sermons. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. You also, son of man, take a clay tablet and lay it before you and portray on it a city, Jerusalem. So draw on this clay tablet, the city of Jerusalem. And, and people would have known very well when you shape out Jerusalem, people in captivity would look at that and go, oh, that's a picture of Jerusalem. And, but yet God is telling Ezekiel also in verse 2, lay siege against it, build a siege wall against it, and heap up a mound against it. Set camps against it also, and place battering rams around, uh, against it all around. Verse 3, moreover, take for yourself an iron plate and set it as an iron wall between you and the city, Set your face against it, and it shall be besieged, and you shall lay siege against it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. Anybody ever played with army men before, right? You build up little hills. You got your army men walking around on it. That's kind of what Ezekiel is called to do. Lay out this city of Jerusalem on this clay tablet and build up these siege mounds and, and begin to kind of portray the army that's coming against it. He's to start playing army in a sense now on the scene as he's acting out this message and then with this this iron wall between it and the city now what is that all representing well it's again depicting this coming invasion of the babylonians against jerusalem they haven't experienced it yet but well they're starting to see it and and this this siege mount is being laid this iron plate that's put up there most likely represented the barrier the people of jerusalem experienced with god because of their sin they kind of separate themselves from God. So that iron plate comes up as that wall now, sort of showing that separation. And then God had Ezekiel lay on his left side for 390 days. 390 days and set his face towards the north, which would have probably depicted the northern kingdom of Israel. 390 days. And it was to be a day for every year of Israel's iniquity. So 390 years was kind of this significant period where Israel had just continued on in idolatry, in sin. And then he was to switch and lay on his right side for 40 days, setting his face towards Judah now, signifying Judah's 40 years of iniquity. And then Ezekiel is instructed to reveal the conditions of the siege in chapter 4. He was to ration his food and his drink. He was to bake his bread. Look at this in verse 12. Just Verse 12 of chapter 4. And he shall eat it as barley cakes and bake it using fuel of human waste in their sight. Gross, right? Like when you're out camping, you're not looking for, you know, piles of poop to cook your food over it, right? You're going, uh-uh. That's not going to be very tasty. But yet, that's beginning to reveal the conditions of the siege when they'd have to ration their food. They'd be cut off from just eating what they wanted. They would have just extreme conditions where they wouldn't even have, have wood to burn any longer. And so Ezekiel is called to 
act this out, to, to portray what's really going on with a visual reminder for the people. And remember, this is all happening while false prophets back home are giving that false message. They're saying, hey, this is God's city, everybody. We're in Jerusalem. We've got the temple, the dwelling place of God. Nothing can happen to us. We're safe here. They're giving a false message, false peace, and a false hope. But Ezekiel's actions now begin to reveal a very different reality for the people. People in exile are starting to see, oh man, we've really gone too far here. Now another illustrated sermon is given in chapter 5. When Ezekiel, look at this here, chapter 5, verse 1, And you, son of man, take a sharp sword, take it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard, then take scales to weigh and divide the hair. So Ezekiel has to shave himself. He has to go bald. Which again, I mean, that wasn't a pleasant thing. You remember, uh, was it Elijah that was getting mocked by the youth because of his baldness, right? I mean, so Ezekiel now, he's got to go bald. Today, being bald is a glorious thing. It's not a shameful thing, just so we're clear. All right, any amens out there? I'm going to be giving a big amen to that myself soon because that's my fate here. But anyways, I digress. So Ezekiel's shaving himself, and now he's got... This hair that he has to divide up into three different sections. And those things were now to, again, be an enactment of what the people of Israel were going to face. One of that, those piles of hair, he was to burn to represent those who had perished by fire or famine during the siege. That other third of hair was to be struck with a sword to represent those who would be struck down and killed by the Babylonian sword. And then the remaining third was to be scattered in the wind to represent those who'd be driven away into exile in Babylon. But then he's told to take some of that now. In verse 3, you shall also take a small number of them and bind them in the edge of your garment. He said, take a little bit of them and just tuck them away in his garment to represent this remnant of people that God is going to preserve and bring back to the land after the captivity is done. And so Ezekiel is living all this out, acting it all out now. Jump over to Ezekiel 7, chapter 7. And then verse 27, we see a key verse here. It says in Ezekiel 7, verse 27, the king will mourn, the prince will be clothed with desolation, and the hands of the common people will tremble. I will do to them according to their way, and according to what they deserve, I will judge them. Then... They shall know that I am the Lord. There's that key phrase that we said earlier you're going to see throughout the book of Ezekiel. God is doing all this. First of all, do you see that? That this is based on what they deserve. God is always fair in his judgment. We think sometimes, oh, that seems a little extreme. But God is always just in what he does. But he says, all this I'm doing, that they might ultimately know that I'm the Lord. Ultimately, God's desire to draw them into repentance to repent of their sin and their waywardness. This means to realize, man, we've forsaken our God. We've gone against him. He is the true God. So God says, I've done all this that they might know that he's the one truly worth following. Now, over the next few chapters, God takes Ezekiel on a bit of a tour of Israel's sins and wickedness. Chapter 8, Ezekiel is taken on this tour to the temple in Jerusalem. Now remember, Ezekiel's back in, in Babylon. So it tells us in chapter 8 that he's taken away in a vision. It says he's picked up by his hair, all right? Ezekiel goes hairborne here at this point, all right? Just like we're doing 
right now. And he's taken in his vision to see the temple. It says in chapter 8, verse 7, So he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. So I went in and saw... And there, every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. Here's Ezekiel looking into the temple. See, Israel had become so steeped in sin that they thought nothing of actually indulging in their sin and their idolatry right there in the very temple of God. This is how far down they had gone. The very things that they thought might have been done in secret Well, it's now being laid bare. As we understand, nothing is hidden from God. And Ezekiel's told, just kind of dig in a little bit. See, sometimes we think oftentimes that we can sort of hide things away. And sometimes we forget, we deceive ourselves that there's things in our lives that are not of God. And we're so good at sort of hiding those things, even from ourselves, deceiving ourselves to think, I don't really need to deal with that. Sometimes like Ezekiel's told, dig in a little bit. We need to peel back the layers and, and ask God to search us and know us and see if there's any wicked way in us as Psalm 139 tells us to do. Look inside and go, God, search me. Know me. Is there something that I've kind of hidden away that's not of you, that I've been holding on to, that I've even been deceiving myself of? Because Ezekiel, at first glance, would look and go, oh, looks great, temple, thank you for this. But when you begin to look inside, Man, there's all these abominable things taking place right there. Chapter 9, we begin to see now the glory of the Lord that is moving away. Remember I said false prophets were speaking out saying, oh, we're safe here. We got the temple. God's presence is here. Well, we're going to see that no, they were wrong because God's presence was moving out. God's glory was checking out because they had checked out from the Lord already. Chapter 9, verse 3, now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. Again, speaking of the cherub that were over the Ark of the Covenant, the very place, the mercy seat where God said, I'll meet with you there. God now picks up. His glory moves out from there. And then in chapter 10, verse 18, jump over there, chapter 10, verse 18. It says, then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim, and the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them, and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. So God is now leaving the place he said he would dwell to be taken up on the chariot throne away from this place that had turned into a place of desecration. That's the tragedy that God is making word to Ezekiel and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. See, they don't want God around, then God's not obligated to stick around. The people of Israel had made it very clear that they weren't interested in God. They'd built up shrines, idols. They'd even done that right there in the temple. They turned away from God, and now God is turning away from them. And how easy it is. Here's the thing is that things just continued on there until the temple was destroyed. Without the, temp- without the glory of God being there. People just didn't get it. And it's very easy for us to continue operating at times in our lives with a sense of God's presence when in actuality, 
He's been far from us, or more so, we've been far from him. Remember what happened to Samson? Judges 16, verse 20 says that the Philistine, Delilah speaking to Samson, says, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. See, so often we think, oh, I got this. I'm just going to jump out. I'm going to just spring into action and move forward in what I think needs to be done. And yet we fail to see that, man, the, the Lord has departed or, or we've departed from the Lord. We've moved away. We've been just kind of running in cruise control without us having that relationship with God and, and just being centered or abiding in the Lord. And we've drifted far without realizing it sometimes. How we need to be sure that we're pressing in, focused on the Lord, abiding in Him, seeking Him, and saying, Lord, unless you're with me, God, I can't do nothing. And I don't want to go anywhere unless you're with me, Lord. Chapter 11, verse 22. It says, So the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was high above them, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city, and stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. Then the Spirit took me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea, back into Babylon, to those in captivity. And the vision that I'd seen went up from me. So I spoke to those in captivity of all the things the Lord had shown me. So here we see that the glory of the Lord now has gone from the temple to the threshold. It, it hovered over the eastern gate. And now it's gone up to the mountain on the east side. What mountain is that? Mount of Olives. Now, the question is, can that glory ever return the answer is yes and the answer is indeed it will especially for israel's case here because as it left from the inner court of the temple rested at that entrance to the temple moved to the eastern gate then up to the mountain well the glory of god is going to return in that very same way when jesus himself comes riding in from the mount of Olives into the eastern gate on the the triumphal entry They'll see this glory of God once more. But it has a secondary future fulfillment in store because just as Jesus came in the first time that way, he's going to come at a second time that way. But what's interesting is that that eastern gate is blocked off, closed off. Many people uh, back in, in the day, Suleiman um, had this blocked off, hearing that this is the place that the Messiah was going to come in through. Just had to block it off. But guess what's going to happen is, is Zechariah records his talks about it, that when Jesus comes back again, he's going to come and set his foot down on the Mount of Olives, and it's going to split in two. And I, I believe when that happens, that eastern gate is just going to pop right open. And Jesus is going to come in the same way again, where we begin to see, again, just the glory of God in fullness. With all of us there, with him at his second coming going to be glorious it's going to be a great day well ezekiel chapter 18 there's a common proverb being spoken chapter 18 verse 1 says this the word of the lord came to me again saying what do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of israel saying the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge as i live says the lord god you shall no longer use this proverb in israel behold all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul whose sins shall die. So the people were getting very complacent. And they're saying, listen, 
we're sinning simply because our fathers have sinned. We're just carrying out the traits of our family, of our, of our ancestors. We're not really at fault. It's their fault that this has all happened. They're kind of, you know, playing the blame game right now, right? Very common thing to do. And it's an easy cop-out to blame your upbringing or your environment. But here's the deal, is that we're all held accountable to God for what we do. The Lord says there in verse 4 that all souls are mine. You're, you're accountable to me. It's between you and me, not between what your parents have done or what you've experienced in your upbringing or in your environment. All souls are mine. And, and with that, God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to visit each person and, and meet with them. Every person, every generation has an opportunity to get right with God. We don't need to blame others. We need to look to the Lord. So jump over now to chapter 28. We're going to jump ahead here now. Because what we're seeing now in chapter 25, we've seen the, the, we've seen the commission of the prophet. We've seen the correction. Um, what did we see there? We saw the correction of the problem, Judah's sin as Ezekiel is taken on that tour and seeing all the different things that, that Judah's been doing. But now we move into chapter 25, all the way to chapter 32, and we look at the condemnation of the peoples. And this is, again, now just this judgment against all the different nations around Israel, these Gentile nations. And, and we look at the way that God is going to deal with them. Though God is dealing quite heavily with his people Israel, right, as he is, well, the other nations aren't off the hook because they've been dealing unfairly. They've been, they've been kind of rejoicing in the, in the demise of Israel. So God says, well, you know better as well. So God reveals his judgment against the nations of Ammon, against Moab, Edom, Philistia, Tyre, Sidon, and Egypt. Now, we cover a lot of that same material in both Isaiah and in Jeremiah as they wrote about the various judgment against these nations. But Ezekiel speaks of one particular place a little bit more than the other prophets do, and that's that of Tyre. And there's, it's been an interesting reason for that. So over in chapter 28, verse 11, let's look at this passage here. Chapter 28, verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Interesting. So as we see, there's this reference to the king of Tyre, perfect in beauty and wisdom, but it seems that we're speaking more of just an earthly king. This seems to be speaking more of Satan than the earthly rule of Tyre. It's as though Ezekiel, through God, is showing the kind of physical king they had and how he's being influenced or moved along 
by this ruler in this spiritual realm. And it's a fascinating passage because there's not a lot in the Bible that describes Satan before his fall. What Satan was like, only Isaiah and Ezekiel do that. Most times Satan is discussed or seen in Scripture after his fall and the things that he's doing now. But here we begin to see what he was like before. And, and the fact is that he was perfect in his ways. Beautiful. The anointed cherub who covers. See, Satan had everything going for him, even like that physical king of Tyre. Satan was the cherub who covers. It seems to represent the cherub that would stand before the throne, a privileged position that he had. But then Satan allowed himself to become prideful. Isaiah talks about that fall where those, you know, I will state statements of, of Satan where he desired to be worshipped just like God was. He desired to be praised. And so he began to be filled with pride until he was kicked out, basically, sent down to the earth. It led to his downfall. And understand that. We talked a bit about that in Isaiah, I believe. But the very thing that led to Satan's downfall, this pride, is oftentimes the very way that he comes to you, begins to poke at you, throw those fiery darts at you to provoke that pride in man. Isn't that oftentimes just the very root of sin in general? Is it becomes about us? It's our pride, it's our desire, our wants that begin to surface and that begin to lead us into sinful things because it's centered all on us. That's why it's so important, as Jesus says, how we need to come and, and die to self. Die to self because that's where we really begin to gain that upper hand and victory over the flesh and sin so chapter 28 very interesting and and ezekiel really emphasizes this this king of tyre in, in reference to this picture of, of satan here and now lastly in our outline we move to now seeing the confirmation of god's purposes we're not going to spend a lot of time through those other chapters here dealing with the nations around israel because we've covered that in previous studies, but now we look at this confirmation of God's purposes. In light of all the doom and the gloom that's been projected to Israel and other nations, well, God wanted to let Israel know that there was still hope to be found in him because guess what? He's not done with them yet. So look at chapter 36, verse 6. Chapter 36, verse 6. Here's what we read there. Therefore, prophesy concerning the land of Israel and, and say to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, and the valleys, thus says the Lord God, behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and my fury because you have borne the shame of the nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I have raised my hand in an oath that surely the nations that are around you shall bear their own shame. But you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and, and and yield your fruit to my people, Israel, for they are about to come. For indeed, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. I will multiply men upon you, all the house of Israel, all of it, and the city shall be inhabited, and the ruins rebuilt. Isn't that great? So here's the Lord speaking now, and he's referencing really the land of Israel and telling the land, get ready, because my people are coming back. 
My people are going to come back and inhabit and there's going to be fruit that's going to be born. But think about those words that are being spoken and in the ears of those in captivity, in exile, in Babylon, to hear those words from the Lord that where he said, my people Israel there in verse 8. Wouldn't that have been refreshing for those people that have been sitting in captivity thinking, is God just completely done with us? Have we been now forgotten because we ourselves have forsaken God? But now God says, my people Israel. Israel, geographically, get ready. Prepare yourself because my people Israel. What sweet words those would have been. He goes on to say in verse 23 of chapter 36. Verse 23. And I will sanctify my great name which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I'm the Lord, says the Lord God, where when I'm hallowed in you before their eyes, for I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I'll sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Wow. What a turnaround this would have been for the Jew. But many people wonder, is this speaking of their regathering after their captivity in Babylon? Or is it their their return to the land back in the 1940s? Or is it possibly speaking of the regathering that's going to take place after the Great Tribulation? Well, with all that we're reading kind of in that context there, it seems to fit with the regathering of the Jews after the Great Tribulation. Because there they're going to have now that, that new heart where the Spirit of God is going to be put in They'll be his people and they'll be his God. This is when they're truly going to walk in that repentance and rebirth in a sense where they're going to follow the Lord. So it seems, yes, it's happened in part in previous times after the captivity of Babylon, back again in 1940s when Israel became a nation in 1948 again, but it's going to have its fullest fulfillment, its exact fulfillment in this passage there after the Great Tribulation. And Ezekiel 37, again, another wonderful prophecy that speaks of this valley of dry bones. Ezekiel is called the lookout. And, and he sees the present state of the house of Israel, that they are just a valley of dry bones. Look at verse 7 of chapter 37. So it says, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise. And suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Also he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Wow, that's amazing. God gives Ezekiel this wonderful vision and prophecy for the people of Israel. You see, as the temple was destroyed, Jerusalem sacked, the people taken in captivity, they must have thought, that's it. 
We have no more hope. We're done. But Ezekiel is told to prophesy to these dry bones. And as he speaks the word of the Lord, well, there's a rattling taking place. The bones come together. Sinews and flesh come upon them. Skin covers them, but there's no breath. So Ezekiel is told to prophesy again and to prophesy to the breath that these bones may live. And indeed, breath came upon them. That word in the Hebrew is the ruach, which is also translated as spirit. So the spirit comes upon them. Those bones, of course, represent Israel. Israel stands as a great lesson or example for us because the more that we walk in disobedience to the Lord, guess what? The drier we're going to become. The drier we become. But there's a way to change that. Be people that get into the word as Ezekiel speaks the word. Things begin to come together. Be people of the word and allow the Holy Spirit, like we saw on Sunday, that living water to come and fill you and overflow in you. And suddenly you'll see that life coming back. We notice that parallel in our own regeneration. There must be the word of the Lord and the spirit or the breath of God breathing in us. Well, before all of these things truly begin to take place, God lays out another scene that's going to unfold in a future day. That's going to be, I believe, kind of the, that wake-up call for Israel to truly look to see who God is. It's found in Ezekiel 38, 39. I'm sure many of you know it, you students of prophecy, the battle of Gog and Magog. And we're not going to take a lot of time on this because this is like a whole night's lesson right here. You can spend a lot of time in Ezekiel 38, 39. But here's the thing. We just covered that at the end of last year. I think in November we studied that. So you want to hear this in depth, go to our website, and you'll be able to listen to that message on Ezekiel 38, 39, which we just did a few months ago with some pertinent information uh, that we see happening in current events and news. And so tune into that. You'll begin to see a little bit more. But here's some key players being highlighted in Ezekiel 38, 39. It's confusing because it's using all these old names that we get from Genesis 10, where it's the table of nations. So we see all these old names that we go, who is that talking about? But when we begin to go through history and look at historians and see who these people were, we see some of the key players involved in this battle that's going to take place is Russia, Iran, speaking of Persia, Turkey, and, and Libya and Ethiopia. Key players, which is interesting because never before have we seen these nations working together as we have just in the last few years. Where Russia and Iran, you know, Turkey getting involved, Libya, Russia putting uh, various stations there in, in Libya, um, strategic military spots there. And so we see these nations are, are working together like never before. And, and you see these armies, these nations, as Ezekiel 38, 39 say, are going to be forming a coalition that are going to come against Israel. There's going to be something that they see Israel has, whether it's you know natural gas or oil that they're going to want. God says he's putting a hook in their mouths. God is at work here. God's doing this work. He's going to draw them in, but then God's going to wipe them out. And it's going to be that thing again that's going to cause Israel to see, oh man, God is at work. And God's on our side. He's protecting us. He's helping us here. And so look at chapter 38, verse 23. 38, verse 23, just to kind of see the point of all this. It says, thus... I will magnify myself and sanctify myself 
And I will be known in the eyes of many nations, especially Israel. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So again, I believe that this battle is taking place in the tribulation period. There's lots of different opinions as to when this is going to happen. And I may be wrong on that, but I believe it's going to happen in the tribulation period. Again, it's going to provide an opportunity for God to prepare the hearts of his people and, and, and to ultimately cause them, Israel, to turn back to the Lord in full repentance. And it ultimately then sets the stage for the glorious kingdom that God has prepared, which Ezekiel's, Ezekiel chapter 40 to chapter 48, to the end of the book, reveals this glorious kingdom that God has in store for his people. Where, again, Israel, no, you're not being wiped out. You're not being forgotten. I've got something in store for you. My kingdom, where the temple is going to be, there'll be a temple rebuilt there in that kingdom, that, that millennial kingdom where Christ is on the throne, where we'll see this kind of worship again being restored to some degree. Now, when Ezekiel foretold all of this, Again, the first temple was still several years away from being destroyed by the Babylonians, hundreds of years from being rebuilt and destroyed again by the Romans. There's no temple in Jerusalem now, but during the millennium, it's going to be rebuilt again. Israel will be hearing of that, realizing that the temple is not going to be wiped out forever. And then Israel's national life is going to be restructured around the presence of Christ in it. And there we read of a purifying river that's going to flow from the temple down to the sea as God heals the land. Chapter 47, verse 10. talks about how the Dead Sea is going to be teeming with life again and people are going to be fishing in the Dead Sea. Listen, there's no life right now in the Dead Sea. But again, when the rivers begin to flow, man, it's going to fill that Dead Sea and life is going to come again. Each of the 12 tribes are going to receive an allotment of land as Ezekiel 48 lays out first. And the name of the city from that day shall be, chapter 48, verse 35. Just look at it with me there. We'll wrap this up. Chapter 48, verse 35. This is how the book ends. All the way around shall be 18,000 cubits. And the name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there. The Lord is there. Isn't that great? Because what's everybody saying right now as this is all being written, as they're sitting in captivity in Babylon, they're saying, where is the Lord? Where is God? But God lays out for them this whole series of what he's going to do and what's to come in a future day when the temple is going to be rebuilt, the city restructured, Israel is going to be back in the land. And there, that city no longer is going to be called Jerusalem, which interestingly means teaching of peace, now it's going to be called Yehovah Shema. The Lord is there. They're going to be dwelling with God once again. The only way that they're going to experience peace is that the Lord is there. You see, Jerusalem, teaching of peace, well, they forsook that teaching. They rebelled against the Lord. They rejected the Lord, and they didn't experience any peace because the glory of the Lord had departed. But now they're going to experience his peace once again when they realize the Lord is there. What a word that must have been. It's a truth that we should all be comprehended, comprehending because we understand today that Jesus came to do what? To dwell with us. To be with us. To reveal God's glory to us. Are we living like it? Are we enjoying it? 
I don't just mean morally. I mean, are we living in the strength and the gladness of the realization that God is here with us today? Let us be those that reveal that, show that, live in it, and enjoy that presence of God that we get to have today. Here's a few application points we'll look at as we wrap up. First of all, as we've seen, God equips those whom he calls. Even though Ezekiel had some challenging things to do, God's spirit empowered him. Secondly, just like Ezekiel, we're all called to be watchmen. We need to be aware of the times that we live in, the events that are leading to the return of Jesus very soon. But more so, be about the Father's business in the meantime. Don't be weird. Don't be a nut. Don't be throwing up your hands saying, oh, everything's falling apart. Lord, just come soon. No, get out there. Be active in the world. Be a witness of Jesus. Share the good news with people. Don't share the doom and gloom. Share the good news. And Jesus has come to set them free of sin that they might have life in him. Thirdly, however difficult and hopeless your situation might look like, never lose heart because you never know what God has planned just on the horizon. That would have been good news for those sitting in captivity in Babylon. May we be reminded of the good news that we have in Jesus that God's not done with us yet. And no matter how bleak things might look, well, God has great things in store. So let's look to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you here tonight and we thank you, Lord, indeed, for this time we can sit and just look through your word. And we've covered a lot here tonight, as we often do on these Wednesday nights. But I pray, God, that you would just take some of these truths now that we've looked at and and just plant them on our heart, the very things that each person needs to hear and be reminded of. Lord, just speak those things into our lives and may we grab a hold of them. Even like Ezekiel that had to eat that scroll and kind of internalize that. May we do that. May we digest what we're hearing and seeing and may it be profitable and at work in our lives and just bearing fruit. And thank you, Lord, that you're on the throne, that you do all things, just that we might know again and again that you are the Lord. And so let may we continue to rejoice in you, to worship you, to trust you. And just lead us on, Lord. Fill us with your spirit here. Lead us on and use us for your work ahead. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.